Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to be with you again. Always love to uh, get back in this area and meet together with you and just know that you're continuing to press on in the spiritual journey, the spiritual battle. Uh, I think all of us, as we look around our country and our world, realize that the spiritual battle is intensifying. Uh, we are living in historic times. And this is really a time when we need to be focused on the plan of God for our lives and focused on his word and living it out because, you know, we're living in a time when everybody's talking about preparation, making preparation for this or that. They talk about preppers and everything else. If we're not prepared in our soul, nothing else is going to help us. We need to have a, a real stockpile of spiritual information uh, we need to have a fortress in our soul to stand against the wiles of the devil in the time in which we live. And that's really why we're here. And it's a wonderful privilege for Nan and I just to have this opportunity to be with you and share some things. There are notes out in the entry, uh, but I'm not teaching from these. These are additional helps for you to go through. The primary standards doesn't have a name on it. I did not do these notes. I was told by the guy that passed them on to me just recently at the Arizona conference, uh, that they were done by a friend of mine in Oklahoma named Drew Freeman. Some of you may know of Drew Freeman. He and I have worked together overseas. He's a fellow pastor and fellow missionary. Uh, this is really on the topic that we're gonna be covering, uh, but I'm not just gonna try to teach through his notes because they're his notes and you know that just never works for me. Um, I would encourage you to take them because the Bible is full of one another commands. Not only the things that we ought to do to and for one another, but things we ought not to do. Uh, we ought not to judge. We ought not to be uh, critical. We ought not to try to tear down fellow believers. And he has uh, a lot of those one another commands in this primary standards and bearing burdens. And then just two weeks ago, we had the uh, Arizona conference and we went through the book of James. So it's quite a challenge to go through the book of James, go through five chapters in five classes. Uh, it would be easier to do it in a year. Uh, maybe we'd be able to dig deep enough, but these were the notes that I gave for everyone on the book of James. And uh, I'm actually working on notes on the New Testament. Some of you may have seen some of the books that are available now. On the notes on the New Testament, we're up to uh, three volumes, and as time goes on and I get more of the work done, we'll probably be combining some of those, but uh, these will be going in the notes on the New Testament. So pick those up if you think they'll be helpful to you, and uh, give them a little bit of, uh, a, little bit of a study. We're going to be actually walking through about three or four passages. And the title, as uh, we talked about it, uh, Jared and I talked about what might be helpful to you, and he suggested esprit de corps. It's a fancy way of saying team spirit, how to build unity, how to build harmony, how to teach people to genuinely care for one another to work together for a common cause and to work together for not only personal maturity, but group maturity and maturity of the church itself. 
So Esprit de Corps is basically team spirit, and we're going to be looking at at least four passages uh, that <clears throat> we're just going to walk through them. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Uh, it's, uh, it's information that is valuable to look at from the standpoint of the flow of Paul's thought. You know, sometimes when we study the writings of the Apostle Paul, and he is obviously very deep, probably the greatest theologian who ever lived, um, we, we tend to look at a verse or two and we miss the flow of thought. So I want to look at the flow of thought, uh, not only in Paul, but we're also going to look at James. You know, a lot of people, since we studied the book of James, a lot of people think Paul and James were fighting each other. Uh, there are even uh, commentators who suggest that James wrote his book uh, to refute Paul's position of salvation by grace through faith alone, which is pretty ridiculous because Paul wasn't even Paul when James wrote the book of James. He was Saul of Tarsus, and when James wrote to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, the reason those 12 tribes were scattered was because of the persecution of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 8. So the idea that he's trying to refute Paul is really ridiculous. Uh, when we get into Romans chapter 4, it's obvious to me that Paul had read the book of James. And I believe that he gives the book of James a right interpretation. If Abraham was justified by works, and he was, James tells us that he was in James 2, 23. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Paul mean by that? Well, James isn't talking about being justified before God in the book of James. He's talking about being justified before men. In other, in other words, vindicating uh, our claim of the gospel message and of the work of Christ in our life. And that is vindicated as we go out and we display our faith in the works that we do. So we'll get into a little bit of James here in just a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to begin by opening with me to the book of Ephesians, if you would. And I've got my whiteboard here, and I'll be using it quite a bit. Oh, by the way, we have pens. Uh, the pens have the basic training Bible ministries. We actually did these. Uh, we had a Bible conference in Nagaland and a Bible conference in Hyderabad, and we made up a bunch of pens because... You know, for pastors overseas, for them to just receive something like a pen is they're they're so happy. They're, they just giggle. They're almost delirious that they just get to take something like a pen, uh, a set of notes or a notebook or something like that. So we made these up and we had some left over. So you're really getting the leftovers from Nagaland. I had the opportunity to go to Nagaland and dedicate a church. Uh, the church was actually built by... Uh, the people of Nagaland, but it was financed by one individual who gave us a phenomenal gift and said, I want this to be used someplace where it's really needed. Well, the place where the church was built is a remote village. It's so remote that they've only had a road into the village for about a year now. One of the young pastors that graduated from the theological college in Nagaland had actually volunteered to go to this remote village and to pastor the church. And so I had the opportunity to go and dedicate uh, this beautiful new church uh, that, uh, in fact, is it in the pictures of the, you'll see it when we're gonna show you on Sunday morning, 
uh, video and you'll see this beautiful church. The village people did all the work. They went into the forest and they cut. You can't believe, I mean, I know you got a lot of lumber cutting people up here. They'll take a chainsaw, cut down a tree, and they will carve with that chainsaw out of that tree whatever they need. Two befores, one by sixes, they just do it all with a chainsaw. No guide, nothing else. It's amazing how they do it. I couldn't believe it. I said, you don't have any kind of a guide on your, on your chainsaw. No, no, we just do it. They showed me how they do it. It's amazing. They'll take a string and they'll mark a line and they'll just take that chainsaw and go through there and they end up with a one by six or two by four or whatever. It's amazing how they do that. But Sunday morning, you'll see pictures of the church being constructed and then pictures uh, of it finished. And that's kind of a long story about how the pens came about. All right. We are going to start in Ephesians chapter four because what we're really talking about is team spirit. I want to talk to you about the rarest thing in the church today. The rarest thing in the body of Christ is unity. What a tragedy that we who are one in Christ, we who make one claim, we who have one Savior are so divided. Uh, we were just talking this morning at the Denijan household and we were talking about uh, mission work and, and working in different areas. And you know, it's interesting when you go into remote areas, if you go into an area where people have been led to Christ, but they haven't been taught anything, it's wonderful. Because they're hungry and they want to learn and you can just start from the ground floor and work up. But when you go into an area where two or three different groups have been working, it's impossible to get people to come together because they're all vying for their team, their club, their group, their church, and our church doesn't associate with your church and so on and so forth. It really becomes a tremendous problem. So what I want to do is I want to look at what does the scripture say about, number one, why are we lacking this unity? Or maybe I should say, first of all, what is the unity that we ought to have? And then secondly, why don't we have it? What are the things that are hindering us from being able to function as the body of Christ? And then because of the problem of division within the body of Christ, how do we solve this problem? And it really has to begin with us. You know, we'd like everybody else to change and be like us, but that's not going to happen. What we need to do is we need to start breaking down some of the barriers that are a hindrance to the function of the body of Christ. And we're going to see those laid out for us very, very clearly uh, here in the uh, passages that we're going to look at. So Ephesians chapter 4, allow me to just offer up a word of prayer again before we uh, jump into this passage. And I'm going to have to hurry because uh, we have a lot to cover. So Father in heaven, what a wonderful privilege to gather together with your people. Uh, if only we knew how much it pleases you to see your people come together, uh, how much it honors the Lord Jesus Christ to see us gather together around the word of God open before us, and how much the spirit of God wants to share with us, to instruct us in, to build within us individually and corporately of the unity that he lived for, that he died for, that he rose again and administers to all who are willing to submit to his rule. 
So Father, give us that humility, that openness of mind, that receptiveness of spirit that is necessary for you to accomplish what you want to accomplish today. We ask that you'll do spiritually, spiritual surgery in our souls and draw us closer to the ideal that you have set before us in the passage that we're about to study. And we will give you the thanks and the praise, not only now, but throughout all eternity for what you're about to accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're actually going to walk through a major part of this entire chapter. So if you will, I want to start. <coughs> I hate to cough into these things because it gets a little bit loud. For a start, I want you to think about something Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room. You know, I've held for a long time that if you carefully study the upper room discourse, one of the three major discourses of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first, of course, being the Sermon on the Mount. That was the introduction uh, of himself as king and the principles of his kingdom. And then you have, of course, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, since he was rejected as the Messiah by Israel, there's judgment that's going to come. And so he's warning them of the things that are going to come upon Israel uh, in the Olivet Discourse and the events that are going to take place in the last days there in Matthew 24, 25. And then, of course, we have the Upper Room Discourse in John chapters 13 through 17. It's very interesting if you think about these three major messages of Jesus Christ. The first deals with the kingdom, which is yet to come. The second deals with events of the end times, which are yet to come. The third deals with what we're living in right now, which we refer to as the church age. And you actually can find the elements of every single truth that's revealed in the New Testament in the upper room. If you look very carefully, you can go to any passage of the New Testament and trace it right back to something that the Lord Jesus Christ said to the disciples in the upper room discourse. And in the upper room, Jesus made an amazing statement. He actually made a lot of amazing statements, but he said this, By this all men will know you're my disciples if you all agree on every point of doctrine. Right? That's what your scripture says, right? No? You have a different Bible? Okay. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you all look and act the same. You know, a lot of groups try to pr produce that uh, conformity of appearance and conformity of conduct and everything else, but that's not what Jesus said. He talked about something that was much more fundamental and something that was much, much more critical to the unity of the body of Christ. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Loving one another takes care of what all the other things are trying to solve. If we all look alike and act alike, maybe we won't have to really extend love because we'll just all be the same. We'll be carbon copies of each other. Or if we all agree on every point of doctrine and on every scripture, then love really isn't necessary because we don't have anything to overcome. We have no gaps to bridge. We have no bridges to mend. We all agree and it's we're all one happy family. That's not what the Lord Jesus was talking about. 
He was talking about something much, much greater. He was talking about something that overcomes the differences that we share in our understanding of Scripture and the differences we may share in how we appear or how we conduct ourselves or something else. It's easy to agree with people you agree with, isn't it? It's easy to get along with people you agree with. It's much more difficult to get along with people who differ, whether they differ in their theological approach, whether they differ in the uh, expression of their beliefs and their faith and so on and so forth. That's when love is really called in to overcome those differences to build the bridges, to heal the gaps, and so on and so forth. And so this is really what we're going to be talking about uh, as a theme all the way through uh, our study over today and tomorrow. So as we get into Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to think of a target. I like to shoot, so the target's a good illustration. There is the idea of unity from a biblical point of view. Now, if you're shooting at this target, are you happy if you're hitting out here? Well, at least you're on the target. If you're out here, you've got a real problem. But when we shoot at a target, we're aiming for here. But nobody gets it at the first try, and nobody gets it all the time unless you're an extreme expert. <clears throat> What we have is three levels of unity. And we're going to see those as we work our way through Ephesians chapter 4. And the first of those is spiritual. Spiritual un unity in the body of Christ. This doesn't depend on us. It's already done. It's already been accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ, through the plan of God the Father, through the energy of the Spirit of God, there is a spiritual unity shared by all believers. Then there is practical. And this is where we find that we're able to work together with people that we may not agree with on every point. We may have... Uh, differences on a passage of scripture, differences on a particular issue that uh, we, we see different. And, you know, it's interesting to me because I know a lot of pastors. I know pastors all over the world. I don't know if I know a single pastor. Jared and I were even talking about this. If he and I sit down and start talking about every passage, we're going to come up with something that we see differently. But that shouldn't hinder our ability to work together. I know some people that are so strict in their willingness to work with others, to uh, have harmony and unity with others, that if you, if you bring up the slightest, the smallest issue where you see a passage different than them, they're done with you. You're gone. You don't agree with me, and I can't work with you. And that's, of course, we're going to see why that exists in the body. The third level is doctrinal. Now we're getting down to where we agree on at least major issues of 
biblical doctrines. There are 10 areas of doctrine according to the development of systematic theology by Lewis Berry Schaefer. Some would add more or less. You know, you have theology proper, the study of God, Christology, the study of Christ, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, angelology, the study of uh, elect and fallen angels, bibliology, the study of the scripture, and you can go on and on and on in the various areas. And so we come to a point where we have a major agreement, and this is a wonderful condition to have. It's great when we see things eye to eye because we believe that we are working our way toward a right understanding of the scripture. That's wonderful. But we're going to walk through in Ephesians 4, and we're going to see all three of these, and then we're going to see why they break down. Paul is going to explain to us what we have, what we desire to have, and then, of course, what is it that causes all the problems? And this is very instructive for each and every one of us. All right, so let's take the first uh, six verses here in Ephesians 4. And I'm simply going to read over the section, and then I'm going to give a few points of explanation. And if we get done early enough, I might leave a few uh, moments for questions if I haven't made something clear. I think we do have a session for questions uh, later on this afternoon uh, as well. So here we go. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. It's interesting to consider Paul's in prison here. He has a lot of pressure on him. Prisons in the ancient world were not like prisons today. He didn't have television and video games and, you know, a cafeteria. And usually in the ancient prisons, if you didn't have someone bringing you food, they let you starve to death. They felt no responsibility to take care of you at all. So Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Very important. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Do you see how this immediately begins to build on the foundation of what Jesus said in John 13? By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Why is the church so weak in the wicked world in which we live today? This is the, the problem. We are lacking the love of Christ. We are lacking that willingness to reach across the aisle. We're lacking that willingness to overcome obstacles or to build those bridges or to bring healing because we are right and we know we're right and we're not going to involve ourselves with anyone who's not right. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There are non-negotiable issues, but those non-negotiable issues are very tightly built around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When we get beyond that, we need to realize there are people that are going to have views that differ from us, and that's not a reason to spit on them, to condemn them, to attack them, or anything else. So, he says, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, what is the unity of the Spirit? He's about to lay it out for us. Here it is, sevenfold unity. Notice these seven things. There is one body, 
and one spirit as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So we have all of this sevenfold unity, a spiritual unity that encompasses every believer. Every single child of God, anywhere in the world, anyone who has trusted Christ as their Savior, shares in these seven things. This is what holds the body together. This is what really is the essence and the foundation of the body of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. I picked up, we had uh, burning going on in Arizona. They were doing, uh, what do they call them? Control burns. And the smoke in our area was tremendous. And I had to teach the Arizona conference with a, a uh, sinus affection that was just driving me crazy. And it moved from my sinuses to my throat to my lungs. It's right now in the lung stage. So it's got me coughing from time to time. So I hope you'll bear with me. All right, the seven things that we all share together here in the unity of the Spirit. Let's just touch on a couple of these, uh, amplify them just a little bit. So he says in verse 4, there is one body. He's sp speaking here, of course, of the body of Christ. What member are you? He's going to get to that. What, what part do I play in this body that we are all a part of? He'll develop that. There's one body and one spirit here, of course, the spirit of God. The spirit of God is the one who brings us into the body. As you were called in one hope of your calling. Let me ask you a question. What is your calling? He said earlier, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What is that calling? We, we speak of a calling uh, just in the uh, secular world as what? If you ask someone, what is your calling? What are you asking them? What's your vocation, right? Then the question would be for you and I as believers, what is our vocation? We have a calling and we are to walk worthy of that calling. And our vocation is that we are ambassadors of Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are to be disciple makers in the world and all of those things come together in one essential idea and that is we're to be representatives of Jesus Christ. Did you ever notice that if you look, particularly the book of Luke, I think Luke must have been fascinated with this particular aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ because I think 16 times in the book of Luke, if I remember the number correctly, you see Jesus at a party. He's at a party. They're feasting. They're fellowshipping. They're having a wonderful time. He meets Matthew. Remember, Matthew was a, a publican. Matthew was a tax collector. And he was working for the Romans. And he meets Matthew. And what does Matthew do? Matthew throws a party for him in his house. The Lord Jesus comes. And it talks about how the common people heard him gladly. Did you ever wonder why? The common people of Jesus' day were all attracted to him and they're not attracted to our churches? I think the answer is clear. The common people saw in him that he loved them as they were. 
They saw in him someone who was accepting, someone who was, what did he say earlier here, that we are to walk in lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another. That is an expression of the character of your Savior and my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. People felt welcomed in his presence. People sensed without any word or display that he loved them as they are. Now, I always tell people God loves us exactly as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And that's real love, isn't it? Real love just doesn't just say, well, I'll accept you any old way you are. Real love says, I love you exactly as you are. And guess what? I'm going to make you better. I'm going to improve your character, your person, your life, and ultimately your conduct and everything else. That's what love does. But you know what? If we make the demand of change on a person before they see the love of Christ in us, it's never going to work. Well, you shouldn't be doing this. This is what legalism does. Legalism comes into our church and it says, don't do this, don't go there, don't touch this, don't eat that, don't, don't, don't. And people say, can't do it, and they walk away. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into an area and those common people were drawn to him and attracted to him and gathered together to him, it was because they realized here is someone who has overcome all the obstacles and all the barriers and someone who loves me exactly as I am and someone who gives me, what did Paul mention here? Hope, the hope of your calling. Now, we all share the hope of eternal life. But there's more to that than just, I'm going to heaven by and by. There is the hope that God is not done with me yet. That God is continuing a work in my life and that it is something that is making me more fulfilled, more content, more happy, more humble, Nothing humbles like the grace of God. When we are overwhelmed that what God has done for us and to us through the grace of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Christ is absolutely humbling. And you know what? Humility produces in us something else. Gratitude. I am so thankful. I'll never forget in Kazakhstan as I was preaching in a little church there and uh, the preacher came up at the end of the message and and ask, is there anyone here who has a need that we can help you with? And this lady that I had noticed sitting at the back, she had a, a face that just said, I've had a hard life. You know, some people you look at and you just say, this person's had a hard life. She was probably in her maybe mid-40s, not, not young, not old, just kind of in that in-between. She came forward and just dropped on her knees and just started crying. And... The pastor said, how can we help you? What can we do? And she began to speak through her tears and through her sighs. And she said, I have been running from God all my life. And today he found me. That's humility. It's not, I made a great discovery. I searched for God. I found him. No, it was, I was running away from him. And today he caught up to me. Well, we later learned the amazing story of this lady. She lived a thousand miles north of Almaty, Kazakhstan in Siberia. And she had come down to visit her mother who she only came to visit 
once every two or three years. Her mother before, every time she came, asked her to come to church, come to church. No, I don't want to go to church. They're all hypocrites. I don't believe any of that stuff. And for some reason, obviously the working of God, the Holy Spirit, she had come to church that day and the Spirit of God was able to use the word to reach into her soul and say, you are loved by the God that you've been rejecting. You are sought by him who came to seek and to save sinners and it grabbed hold of her heart and it brought her down to the front. What an amazing thing. Amazing story. And when we realize what God has done for us in sending his son into this world to go to the cross and to pay the penalty for our sins, and what did he ask of us in order to do that? I'll go to the cross for you if you'll do this and that? No. I'm going to the cross for you whether you receive it or not. I'm going to die for you even if you reject it. I'm going to pay the penalty for your sins even though you curse me, even though you malign me, even though you slander my name. I will go freely and take your debt on myself and pay the penalty for your sins to give you the opportunity to enter eternal life and share eternity with me. That's the grace of God. And when we understand and are overwhelmed by that grace, the gratitude that we feel moves us to respond in wonderful ways. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I need to move on or we're not going to get through all that we have to see. So, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Could I just point out to you that in verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5, we have that triad of virtues that were so important to the Apostle Paul, faith, hope, and love. You see them there? Everywhere I find faith, hope, and love, I circle them. And you would be amazed that they don't just show up in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. We all know that verse. How many times do they come up? Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Read through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you'll find faith, hope, and love very close together. I just encourage you as you look through the scriptures to find those. He says in verse 5, one Lord, that's Jesus Christ, one faith, that's faith in Him, unconditional trust in the work that He accomplished, one baptism, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that takes the unbeliever when they exercise faith in Jesus Christ and transfers them into the first circle of unity, which is the unity of the body. By one spirit are we all baptized into one body. And that happens at the moment of salvation. And he tells us in the book of Colossians that he has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But the plan is not that we sit here on the periphery. The plan is that we move ever closer to a clear, accurate understanding of the word of God. It's a journey that takes Years and years and years. And it's a journey of transformation of our own personal character into conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so we've looked at the sevenfold unity that we have. Let's look at the practical side of it. We're moving now from the outer circle to the next circle in that practical unity. Notice in verses 7 to 10. But to each one of us, was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
to each one of us. Now we're talking not about what all of us have together, but what we have personally, something that's unique to us. God gave to each one of us something very unique, and it is a measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And we receive that gift at the moment of salvation, when we enter into union with Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the profiting of themselves. Right? No. To each one, that's to every one of you, if you're a believer, you have something unique. No one else has it. You might share the same gift that someone else has, but it's not going to work the same through Jared has the gift of pastor teacher. I have the gift of pastor teacher. It doesn't work the same through us, does it? No two will ever be alike. This is the diversity that we have within the unity. Unity of all believers in Christ, but diversity of each and every one of us to play a part that no one else can play. How astounding is that? So he tells us to each one is given what a manifestation of the Spirit. This is 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. Remember the Holy Spirit does five things. I got to rush here. Five things the Holy Spirit does at the moment of salvation. The moment we trust in Jesus Christ, we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit results in regeneration. I don't know if you can read my writing or not. I can't even read it. Third, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then we are gifted for the part that God wants us to play and sealed unto the day of redemption. If you want to remember those five things, just think of a lawnmower, Briggs and Stratton. Just remember Briggs, you'll always remember it. <laughs> Baptism, regeneration, indwelling, gifting, and sealing. All of those things happen the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And why did he do all of that? Well, he's got a plan for us. Notice verse 9. Now this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. I'd love to go into this. I'm sure that Jared has covered it. Uh, we, we just can't really uh, dally on this point. Verse 10. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That he might fill all things. That's what we're aiming at. That's the center of the target. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Why do we have the positions of leadership and teaching that we have? So that we can all play our part. So that we can all grow up in the faith. And as we mature spiritually, we begin in our gratitude and appreciation for what God has done for us to get involved in service. I asked my pastor when I was a young Bible college student, how can I discover my spiritual gift? He said, do it. I said, wait a minute, I want to discover it. He said, do it. I said, no, you don't understand. I don't know what it is. How do I discover it? He said, do it. And then he chuckled and he said, 
If you humble yourself and begin to serve in the act of serving, God will guide and direct you into the discovery of your spiritual gift. Guess what? My spiritual gift was the one gift that I didn't want. When I came to Christ on the day that I trusted Christ as my Savior, I prayed a prayer and I said, Lord, I just, I'll do anything you want me to do. And then I denied that very statement. I'll do anything you want me to do, except please don't take me to China and please don't make me a pastor. Well, he did both of those things. Because service begins where? Outside our comfort zone. If I can do it in my own natural strengths and talents, it's not supernatural, is it? It's not spiritual. It's not above and beyond just natural human talent and capability. God wants to take us and use us in ways that we would never be able to be active otherwise. So what is he telling us here in verses 7 through 10? We're now talking about what we might call practical or operational unity. Various gifts in different people that express themselves in different ways, all working together for a common goal. What is the common goal? Well, if we look at it in its widest possible perspective, it's what Jesus spoke about at the end of Matthew when he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We tend to look at that great commission, which too often is the great omission. We tend to look at that and think that the command is go. Oh, we got to go. He said go. Well, that's not the command. The command is make disciples. Make disciples. There are three participles that tell us how we can make disciples. Number one, by going. Number two, by baptizing. And number three, by teaching. And why are we going? Well, we're going with a message. And the message is the love of God through Christ and the work that he accomplished for us. So we have a message for the world. And as we go, we are spreading that message. As people respond, we then baptize them. Why do we baptize in water? Because it is acting out what's already happened in the soul. The Spirit of God has placed us into union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we're now professing to the whole world, this is a reality in my life. That's practical. Now let's get to the doctrinal. This is the last aspect here from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, as we look again at verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Someone has to equip the saints so that they can go and do what God has called them to do. And that comes through the teaching of the Word of God. The real emphasis and the real importance is not so much on the people doing it, it's on what they're doing. They're teaching the Word of God. The Word of God is being taught, and as the Word of God is being taught and received in humble faith, transformation is taking place. As Paul said in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice. We're going to see more on that. Let's go to Romans here pretty soon. 
So as the individual believers are taught, as they mature in their faith, they begin to grow up into the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Could I just encourage you to think about this? As you participate in this local church, you are essential to others in this body. You're essential. What you have to offer, what you are able to give, the unique flavor of your own personal expression of the love of Christ through the gift that he has given you is something that other people desperately need. Too many in their immaturity go to a church for what I get. That's fine for children. For adults, it's a different matter. I am going now not only because I want to continue to grow in grace, but I am going now because I have a personal responsibility. You know what maturity is in a word? Responsibility. To be responsible. To recognize that you have certain obligations certain demands that are placed on you that you must fulfill. <coughs> and so he says, until, verse 13, we all come to the unity of the faith. Not the unity of the body, nor the unity of our function or operation, but now we're talking about Doctrinal unity, theological unity, unity of understanding, agreement on what is the Word of God teaching. It's wonderful to meet believers as fellow believers, and they may differ with you on everything, but you know, hey, they've got eternal life, we're going to spend eternity together, and you love them in spite of the differences and the conflicts, right? It's wonderful to get together with believers who you may differ with, but you can work together with them because you realize that your goal is let's reach people for Christ, let's bring them into the body, let's build them up in the faith. But when you get together with people who understand God's word as it is to be rightly understood and all of us are constantly working toward a higher and a clearer understanding of God's word. If I knew everything that was in this book, I'd give up because life would become boring. I discover something new every single time I teach it. And it's exciting to me because I'm learning and I'm growing deeper in my understanding of the Word of God and the plan of God for my life and the lives of those around me. But to come together with a fundamental unity of understanding of the Scripture, you know what you have then? You have a band of brothers. You know, we have a son who served with the U.S. Marine Corps in the 3rd Recon Battalion in Afghanistan. He did two tours in Afghanistan. When he came back, he actually joined the local fire department. You know why he joined the fire department? He was hoping to find what he left behind in Afghanistan, a band of brothers. He didn't find it. He didn't find it because there just was not the same commitment, devotion, cohesion. And he made a statement to me one time that I thought just applies so marvelously to the church. He said, there were guys in our recon battalion that I didn't even like as a person, as an individual. He said, I didn't really like who they were. But he said, I would have died for them any minute and I know they would have done the same for me. In fact, they did. They lost 
quite a few people over there. That's something that stays with him. That's something that he carries. That's something that he's seeking is that band of brothers that go through the flame and the fire, that go through the pain and the hurt together and will do anything to sacrifice for one another. Do you have that in your church? Do you have it in the church to the degree you'd like to have it? Could I suggest to you, if you don't, you're the one that needs to be the spark to light that fire in the church, to show those around you. We may not agree on everything. We may not be uh, in perfect harmony on every issue. Our likes and our dislikes are different. Our commitments are different. But you know what? I would die for you. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, living in the second century, was the one who recorded for the world a statement that is often used, but too often little understood. As he looked back over the early stages of the Christian church development and the persecutions that they went through and the sufferings that they uh, endured, he said that it became a common saying in the world of the heathens and the world of the Roman Empire, as they watched Christians lay down their lives for one another, they would say, behold, how they love one another. Behold, how they love one another. There are on record young men who would sacrifice themselves in the place of an older man who had a wife and family. He was going to be made a martyr. They would volunteer to take his place. It's basically the principle of the cross all over again, someone dying for someone else. And they would say, take me, sacrifice me. I don't have a family. I don't have children. This man has a family. Take me, burn me at the stake, throw me to the lions, run me under the wheels of the chariots, Put me in with the gladiators. Whatever you want to do, take me. We don't have that today. We don't have people who will hardly walk across the street to help each other out. We don't have people who are willing to give themselves in dedicated, disciplined, devoted prayer for people who are suffering. We don't have people who hear of a member of the church who's sick and are at the door at the earliest possible opportunity. Here's some food. What can I do? Can I clean house for you? Can I help you out? This is what they had in the early church. And folks, we're heading historically in our generation into a time like the early church. As the early church began, it's going to end. I've said for years the church began in house churches and it'll probably end in house churches because the persecution is going to intensify. It's going to become more and more brutal. It already is all over the world and it's coming here. And I said years ago, 30 years ago, I said when persecution comes to the United States, it'll come through the courts and it'll be legal. That's exactly what's happening. It is becoming illegal to be a Christian in the United States of America. It is illegal because you cannot voice that there is only one way, and that is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's becoming illegal because you cannot speak the truth and say something as obvious as there are only two sexes, male and female. You can go to jail for saying that in some places. As a matter of fact, there's a guy in Britain that got put in prison for saying there are only two sexes, 
male and female. So what do we do? Oh, well, like good little Christians, we learn to talk in whispers and we learn not to be too bold and, and we learn how to work our way around. And well, we're never gonna see impact from the church in America until the church starts standing up and saying enough is enough and we're gonna stand for the truth and we're gonna speak the truth regardless of the price that we may have to pay. So, if you'll allow me a couple of minutes to wrap this up, as we talk about this final unity of the faith, notice verse 14, that we should no longer be children. You know, it's children who fight and squabble all the time. And when adults fight and squabble all the time, it's because they're infants in their mind. You can always tell it. You know, we talk about the adults are in charge, how I wish they were in our government, because they're not. We have infants. Our, our nation is being run by infantile people. He says that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but in contrast to that, and we're going to look at some of this because in the next hour, we're going to find out why does all of this go the way that it goes? Why are so many Christians distracted and led astray? We'll see that. He says, speaking the truth, verse 15, in love. Speaking the truth, that is God's word in love, talking here about the love generated and produced by God the Holy Spirit, the love of Christ, may grow up, I would say, keep on growing up in all things unto him who is the head, even Christ. I want to ask you a question. Is there a passion in your heart to grow up into the likeness of Christ? If they're not, we're wasting our time. If we think we've already arrived, we're wasting our time. But if we realize that I have come so far, I look back to the day that I trusted Christ, I see how he has loved me, how he has carried me, how he has forgiven me, how he has restored me time and time again. And I realize I've only begun to scratch the surface of what I could know and experience and understand of the love of Christ. I want it all. You know, I'm getting old. I know there can't be too many years left on the roster for me and I feel like I have scratched so little of the depth of what God has for me in Christ. I want to have it all. It's one reason why this year has been the hardest year of my 53 years of ministry. 15 Bible conferences and camps, four overseas missions, conferences overseas, hours and days of travel. Sometimes when we leave, we don't get where we're going for two days. It's two or three days travel. Oh, it's almost like planes, trains, and automobiles, you know? Why in the world would I be doing this? People say, you know, you're getting old. You need to slow down. I can't slow down. I want to speed up. I want to go further. I want to go faster. I want to do more because there's little time left. I hope that you have that motive. We want to grow up into Christ. Notice verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, that is each member, each part playing their part, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth 
of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Can you see how he starts up there in verse 11 with the teaching gifts, the evangelistic gifts as those which are building up the body and he ends here in verse 16 with the body building itself up, which means that the lowliest member is building up, if you want to use this terminology, the highest member. The least in the church is building up the pastor building up the eldership, building up the leaders, the missionaries, whatever it may be. And so we have from a spiritual unity an operational or a practical unity that is leading us together into a greater doctrinal unity, which is bringing us to conformity to the character, the image, and the conduct of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it's real, it's wonderful beyond anything that words can describe. This is where we're heading. I want to leave you with this as we take a break, coffee and cookie or whatever time. What is it that keeps messing it up? Why don't we have it? And what is it that keeps us from having it? That's where we pick up next time. See you then. Let's pray. I don't know about you. That class seemed to me like about 15 minutes long. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the potential that you have placed within each and every one of us. We thank you for the marvelous, stupendous, spiritual, and eternal opportunities that you have given to us to invest our lives in the lives of others to be able to say, to do, to be able to pray so as to make an impact on people around us, to leave our mark in the lives and the souls of those with whom we come in contact so that not only as we bless them, but they in turn bless us. We're all coming closer to the calling with which we have been called and what is it? Just to be a reflection of our marvelous Savior. Help us, Father, through the time that we spend together here to become more like him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.